So please turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Who was here last Wednesday with John Kirby? You realize that was his very first time ever preaching. And when you hear it, you're like, are you serious? That was his first time ever preaching? Yeah, that was his first time ever preaching. And I got a chance to listen to it. I was on vacation. I wasn't here. So I went online and listened to it. And um, He's gifted by the Lord. He's in Detroit, and he's reaching Muslims like crazy. It's amazing what he is doing in Detroit and how the Lord has positioned he and Elise there living in the house of a Muslim leader in the community and just being a witness in and what he's doing out there in Detroit is just really fun to watch the, what the Lord is doing. He stepped out in faith, and God's honoring that. So he was excited to come here because we are his home church, kind of ascending church. Prior to that, Eric talked on Acts chapter 15. And briefly, I just want to talk about it because it is a hallmark passage for us as Christians to understand. Acts chapter 15 has serious implications on when we go out and we share our faith with, with people about Jesus, what does it take to be saved? And what do we put on people or what do we not put on people to say this is what you need to do um, to be saved? That was a big deal during the time... Uh, when Acts was being played out and Luke was writing it, it was a huge deal, this whole circumcision thing, because it wasn't just circumcision. It was everything else that the Jews had, the traditions, and some of the things that God had told them to adhere to in the Old Testament had now gone away. And what it meant for them prior to Christ has a new meaning now. And what Peter had witnessed We saw the the household of Cornelius come into Christ, who was a Gentile, and he saw the Holy Spirit moving in and through their lives, and he just couldn't believe it. He was just like, the Holy Spirit is just going in and through these Gentiles and speaking boldly to them, and it's manifesting themselves, and they're not even circumcised. So these people are the child of God, and well, we don't have that covenant, that thing We're not putting upon these Gentiles of circumcision. You have to be circumcised to be a child of God. And then as Paul goes out in his first missionary journey, chapters 13 and 14 of Acts, what does he see? The same thing. The Holy Spirit is moving in a huge way with the Gentiles who are not circumcised. So Paul and Peter come back to Jerusalem. There's a huge gathering, a huge meeting. It's called the Jerusalem Council. It's the first big church meeting that we have to set theology straight. And we had a whole bunch of people, important, important people at this meeting, Pharisees who had come out of, who had come to Christ, people within the temple, within that sphere in Jerusalem. You had Peter and Paul who were out and they were doing missionary work. And they all came together to try to figure this out. And James, Jesus' half-brother, has now taken the position of leadership within the church, and he oversaw this council. And they determined a Gentile does not need to be circumcised. If a Jew wants to be circumcised, praise the Lord, let a Jew be circumcised. But we are not going to levy this this command that we have from the Old Testament onto these new believers because we are in the new covenant. It's a different time. 
And it was a sharp dispute, it says. That means they were really getting into it. What's a sharp dispute look like in your house when there's a sharp dispute going on? Can you just imagine? This is what was happening. This was a big deal to them. Well, they pretty much put it down in paper or parchment. And then at the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul wants to go back and revisit. He tells Barnabas, let's go back and revisit those churches that we visited in our first missionary journey. And that was all throughout Galatia, in that area in in Turkey. Okay, and Barnabas is like, all right, let's do it. So let's bring John Mark back. And Barnabas had a really liking with John Mark, but Paul was like, I can't have him coming because he bailed out of the last first missionary journey. We're not bringing him. And it said there, it was a very sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas. A big deal. And they, I don't know if they agreed to disagree or they just departed and they were upset with each other. But what that tells me is they're human just like we are. And they're trying to figure this thing out as well. These people don't have some halos on their head walking around like they'd never have problems. They're just like you and I. And so what we have at the end of 15 here, and it said in 39 that then the contention between Paul and Barnabas became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And we know that Silas was a prophet just a few verses prior to that, it told us. And being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we have Barnabas taking John Mark, the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark, who Paul at that point did not want to be around. Barnabas takes him and they go to Cyprus. We have no idea what happened. I bet it could have been amazing things happening. Church plants happening, the hand of God moving. We just don't know. I can't wait to get to heaven to find out the whole story about what other missionaries were doing as they were sent out. But here we have it. Silas and Paul are going, and the majority of the text here is about Paul and Silas. And so as they got this this parchment in their hand, and they're going to go revisit the churches to talk doctrine, to give them the doctrine of circumcision, and to teach them how to implement it. That's their mission. They're going to go back and strengthen the churches, Okay. So then they came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there. So we're talking modern-day Turkey. That's where they went. They went up in modern-day Turkey, the southeastern side of modern-day Turkey. And there's a certain disciple that was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So about five years prior to this happening right here, there's a, probably a strong possibility that Timothy became a believer through Paul's first missionary journey. So Paul is going back probably four to five years later to revisit these churches, and this is where he runs into Timothy. And Timothy is talked about in six, at least six of Paul's epistles, and he even says he's like a dear son to me. There's nobody even like-minded, he tells the Philippian church. I'm sending Timothy to you. There's nobody even like-minded like Timothy is to me. He looks at Timothy as a son and a disciple, and it's an opportunity to take a person who is probably new in their faith and disciple them. And who is he? He's a, he's a son of a Jewish woman who believed, but the father was Greek. 
So in Jewish tradition, if your mother is a Jew, Jewish, then that makes you a Jew by blood. And so by blood, Timothy was Jewish, but he was never, but he had a father who was Greek, which kind of lends to the, to the next part down here that we'll get into in a second, which is pretty crazy. Um, but he said, what kind of person was Timothy? He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted to have him go along with him. So this Timothy that we have, we have the, his name in all the epistles, and then we have two books that were written that we get the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And that's who Paul is writing to later because he is the, the pastor of the church of Ephesus at that point. And he has a name, a well-known name, and Paul says, he's a man of good reputation. I want him to come with me. So Paul wanted him to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, I thought... Kent in 15, chapter 15, you just told me that the church back in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council said, you don't need to be circumcised. So why is Paul having this grown-up man circumcised? And some of you are like, I've maybe never caught that before, or you've always been scratching your head wondering. For the sake of the gospel, Paul is saying, we're going to people who don't understand this point and who are so stuck on the concept of circumcision. All it is is a huge wall. We will never get anywhere if, Timothy, if you are not circumcised. A Jew will not listen to you. You're not going to be able to go into the synagogue. You'll be considered unclean. How can we ever have a conversation with people we're trying to reach if you're not going to be circumcised? And I don't know how this came about. I don't know if Paul talked to Timothy about this ahead of time, saying, look, I got this scroll right here. It says it. But, bro, we need to take care of some business and get you circumcised. But this is a big deal. And what does this tell you about the character of Timothy? That he's willing to go, undergo pain for the sake of the gospel. Does he have freedom to not be circumcised in the Lord? Yes. But he, he does it anyways. And when we are doing missions work, and that's what Paul and Timothy are going to be doing, they're going to be doing missions work, he has to set his, his own comfort literally aside, his own body aside, even sacrifice kind of his body in a sense, so they can reach people. We see this in the Muslim world and stuff, and we see missionaries who go out thinking, hey, I have freedom. And I want these people to know their freedom. So the best way for them to know how to have freedom is if I walk in freedom, they'll understand it. So they go out there and they have their, their, their way of eating and eating pork, drinking alcohol, wearing whatever they want to wear, and they get nowhere. They just get shut down over and over and over. Do they have freedom to eat pork? Yes. We already covered that and prior to that, I think in... Acts chapter 11 or 12 with Peter. We have the freedom to do that, but it's offensive to a Muslim or it's offensive to a Jew even to this day. And if I want to lead them to Christ, am I going to walk in there and say, well, you need to hear what I have to say, and by the way, can you pass me the bacon? Like, it's not going to work out. They're probably not even going to listen to you. You aren't even going to earn the right to be heard. 
Even though you have freedom, sometimes you have to forego your freedoms for the sake of another soul. You do. And you have freedom right now. And sometimes it can get in our way. Like when I go to Uganda, I hate dressing up in a tie, in a, in a shirt. And I, but if I walk into that church and I don't have a shirt and a tie on, and I try to preach, there's going to be a lot of people I have a problem with because in their culture, that's normal. Do I have the freedom not to wear that tie? Of course, I can wear what I want to wear, but I'm going to honor them, and I don't want this thing that I don't care much for around my neck choking me to get in the way of them listening to the message. Because I'm a pastor, if I go into the community, literally, if I walk into the community in shorts, they're probably not going to listen to me. That's the Ugandan culture. That's how they are. And everywhere I go around the world, I have to find out, well, what, are their, what, what is their culture? What are they used to? And I have to adapt to that. And we have to do that as well. Wherever you're at, you have to adapt. Some of you may have parents who are really religious and strict. It doesn't mean they're not saved but they're strict. And some of you are like, yeah, I got some of those parents that say, if you don't go to church two times on Sunday, wear a suit on Sunday morning, but you can kind of wear what you want on Sunday night. But if you don't go, then we got an issue here. And if you don't tithe just like this on this day and whatever the thing is, you know, it just goes down the list. You're like, well, I have the freedom so I can do whatever I want. But if you go and you worship with them, why don't you try worshiping like the way they worship and earn the right to be heard so they can experience some of that freedom that we have in the scripture. And I'm not saying wearing suits and ties is even wrong. I'm not saying that. You guys get the principle and the point. And that's what Timothy, he's going to the extreme. He's saying, I'll be circumcised, Paul, for the sake of entering into a conversation to tell somebody about Christ. Amazing. It shows you the character of Timothy. And so it says in 4, and they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in the number daily. So Paul visited those churches in the first missionary journey. So he already, those churches that were established, he revisited them. If some of you, if you have Bibles with maps in the back, you can just turn to them. You can see Paul's missionary journeys. He had three missionary journeys. He's on the second one right now. So in verse 6, it says, And now when they had gone through Pergia into the region of Galatia, again, we're, still, we're in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Man, I have no idea what this looked like and really what happened. All I know is Paul went out to speak or to do something with the gospel and get people saved or establish churches, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. I don't know what it was about. I don't know if, if he got sick. I don't, it's hard for me to think that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and gets you sick for a reason. I don't know how that happens, but if you listen to commentators, they go from all, all directions, and it's all speculation. But what we do know is Luke is telling us that Whatever happened as they were going through middle to western part of Turkey, 
that the Holy Spirit would not let them preach and let them do the, what they wanted to do. So they must have had a heart's desire to do some sort of ministry, and it just got canceled out, and they couldn't do it, and they didn't know why. So they just kept on going, and they, then they get down to the southwestern part of Turkey called Troas. It says, na- and in a, uh, where am I? Okay, so in A, it says, so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And now after he had seen the vision, immediately, he didn't wait on it, that's what I mean, immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So who's the author of the book of Acts? Luke, right? Luke's the author of the book of Acts. Did you just notice that in A, it says, so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And in a vision, it appeared to Paul. And then after he'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. So they must have hooked up with, the, uh, with Luke at this point. So the, the change of pronouns is said, when they came, they were coming And then when Paul received this message, we did something with it. And so whatever happened there, it sounds like that Luke and Paul and Silas and Timothy all met up to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is above Greece. It's actually in Europe. So what we're going to do now is we're going to get out of Galatia. We're going to get out of modern-day Turkey. And Paul is actually going to go into Europe for the first time. And he does this because he had seen a vision of a man that said, we need your help. Please come to us. We need your help. And it was so convincing to Paul that he's saying, I don't know what happened. It wasn't part of our plan to begin with. But whatever that vision was, I'm taking off and I'm going. And man, I, I don't have many visions like Paul, like this right here. And it, And to be honest with you, the book of Acts, it doesn't really speak too much about visions. It does it several times, but the the apostles are not going out solely based on receiving a vision. But Paul, whatever it is, received a vision, and it felt so true to him that this man says, come over here and help, then boom, they go. And I know some people who have had dreams, and they acted upon those dreams, like we have a brother in in the fellowship named Rick Edwards, and he's a, you know, an officer in the military who retired after 20 years. He, um, he was a C-141 pilot, then switched over to a C-17, retired, and went into the contracting world, and one night, he had a dream about being in a prison, and the, the, the doors closed, and he felt in that dream I'm supposed to go to the prisons and share with these people who have these doors completely closed to them, and I'm supposed to go. And so he, he started going to Trinidad Prison, which is two and a half hours away. Every single Sunday for over seven years, Rick has faithfully gone to the Trinidad Prison because that dream of his was so real. And if you ever want to go see what God is doing there... Um, and if you're a male, 
go to see, um, or a couple, a married couple would like to attach with him, you, we could do that and we can see and he has to get your stuff in the system or whatever. But you know what? There's no chaplain there. So if there's, he's not there, they can't even meet for church. And so he faithfully goes and gives a message and he drives five hours there and back every Sunday based upon this dream, this conviction that he had. I've seen several people like that before. And what we're seeing is then for the first time in seven years, about three or four weeks ago, I was coming down the stairs and Rick was like, Kent, come, come. And he introduced me to a man who had been in the prison and he was in Rick's church there at the prison. They considered themselves part of Rocky Mountain Calvary, by the way, the church in Trinidad. And I got a chance to meet him because he established this relationship with him here and he started coming and he's a faithful brother in the Lord who was part of the church there in Trinidad Prison and now he's out and he's in our church and he's growing in the Lord here. And it's so cool to see how the Lord does things like that. Even underneath our, underneath our, our noses here at the church. So he gets this vision and they go. So they sailed from Troas and it says we, again now it looks like we have at least four of them there, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And then the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So they, they worked their way up into Macedonia, and then Philippi is a Roman colony. It's the largest city in this region. It's in a Roman colony, meaning that even though there's local indigenous people there, the Roman government has established itself as the government, the big government that's there, and everywhere your ports and ta gives taxes to Rome. So it's a Roman colony. What else do we know? That it didn't have a synagogue. So that means that there's probably less than 10 Jewish men in the city. Because if you had 10 Jewish men, you can start a synagogue. So this gigantic city, and from what we can gather, has no synagogue. So what does that tell you about the spiritual state? They don't even have an understanding of Yahweh, the Old Testament God. And so when Paul goes in there, what he finds is no synagogue. And so where does he go? When there's usually no synagogue and there's not enough people in a city, they would probably meet down by a river, history tells us. And that's where he goes. And what does he find? A group of ladies. And there's no men there. And so that's where he goes after several days of wandering around Philippi. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you, have, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. What does this mean? Well, for one, I mean, this tells us an enormous amount about God and salvation. What did you catch from that? God opened her heart to heed the message that Paul gave her, and she gets saved. She was already a worshiper, probably Jewish, we don't know, 
but she was a worshiper, but she didn't have the complete information, and it took God to open her heart to hear the gospel so she could come to Christ. What does that tell you that when you go out and you share your faith, well, I'm going to go back to Scripture, and in my prayer, I'm going to probably somehow or some way talk to God in a manner that somewhat references this passage and say, God, would you please open the hearts of the people? Show me who to talk to. Where do you want me to go? And open the hearts of the people that can hear your words. But so many times we can fall into the trap that I have to somehow argue my way into their salvation. If I come up with a really dynamic way of sharing the faith and leaving the Lord out of it, if, or whatever, then they're going, you know, they're going to get saved. But what, that, what, what tells me here is God wanted Lydia to be saved, and Paul was obedient to what God wanted him to do, and he went and shared his faith with this woman, and she comes to Christ. And it's not just any woman. This is a woman who sells purple, meaning it's the color of royalty. I mean, we don't have the hobby lobbies and things like that. They didn't have it like we do today. I mean, this was expensive stuff to come by to be able to, to tan a, a piece of cloth in purple and color it purple and dye it purple was a big deal. And it was the color of royalty. And so she is a very wealthy, prominent woman. And when you have a household in this culture, you probably have servants. You have a household of people that take care of your property and that you're over if you're like Lydia. And you probably had a house of between 8 and 15 rooms when the average middle range of a person would be one-room studio. Here's Lydia, more than likely, with a house with many rooms. It's like, how do you know that? Well, in architecture and digs and things like that, it tells us people with households had big households. And then, if you've ever been to Pompeii, which is just a remarkable place to, to go visit, you see this Roman architecture that was where, how the Romans built and, and how it was all set up. It was all preserved when Mount Vesuvius erupted and covered all of Pompeii. And when I went there back in 1996... They had a quarter of it excavated and undone. They had an enormous part of the city still under the dirt. And when you walk in, I mean, everything is preserved, even the people. It's remarkable to see. And the tile work and how every, the streets were set up, it just was all preserved in the ashes. So you can see how these houses were. And a lot of times they had these big fountains right in the middle of the houses and it acted as air conditioning. Um, with these big fountains that come up. And, and so this woman probably had a house such as this, and when she invites Paul to come, she probably had a decent amount of room to stay. And so the four of them go because she persuaded them. She was a seller of purple. She was a businesswoman, and she probably wasn't hard for her to get them to understand that. If you found me to be faithful and good, why don't you come and stay at my place? And so here's Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke just get there, and they, they lead the first person to Christ that we know of in Scripture from Europe. Lydia was the first European to come to Christ. Isn't that awesome? So they go into prayer. Watch what happens now. This is when you want Hollywood to grab onto this and tell, and tell it accurately because it really is 
a dynamic story. Now it happened, as, they went to, as we went to prayer, Luke says, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for how many days? Many days. Picture this, guys. Think about it. If, this, if you were part of this little group and you're walking around Philippi trying to find just divine appointments, where is God moving, and you had this crazy girl that had the spirit of divination who's a fortune teller who was well known in the community because she brought her masters or her pimps a lot of money. And she just keeps walking and behind them. These are the servants of the Most High God. It's like, this is so confusing. And how much patience did they have to have to keep on letting her do this until they're finally just going to interrupt? But, I mean, this chapter tells us so much about the spiritual world, about who God is, the character, and how God works, and how a missionary just has the heartbeat of God, and he knows where to go, and how to be obedient and go. But it tells me that this woman had a spirit of divination that allowed her to fortune tell. So these tarot card readers that we have out in our culture, in, our, in Colorado Springs, how do you think they can do what they do? And do you th- it, they don't make the stuff up because I've had friends and even family go to them, and they told them things that were going to happen, and it actually happened. And there was no way that could have happened. No possible way. And it worked. How do they do that? By a spirit of divination. And if you think you can go to these tarot card readers and you can go to these people who fortune tell and call up these hotline numbers and get Dion Warwick or whoever's on the other end, I don't know if she still does that or not. I hope she's saved, you know, but and I don't say that in a bad way. I'm, I'm honest. But she had that big, that big fortune-telling ministry online for a while. They can actually work. It works because they have this spirit of divination. I mean, Satan's in this. Don't go. Please, don't go. And encourage anyone that's even thinking about doing it not to go. She brings her masters a lot of money, so it must be working. Something's good. But it so annoyed Paul that he turns and he says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Did he attack the woman? Or did he attack the spirit in the woman? Did he attack that attitude that was coming from something other? Paul was discerning to know he needs to talk to the spirit because he already figured out that this woman is not of God. And she is possessed. And so he speaks to the spirit in that very hour it came out, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. So really this is about money, isn't it? When you start messing around with people's money, they'll cloak it in another problem just to get somebody else of authority riled up, and they sure rile up these magistrates, these Roman officials. And 
their point here is, we've never heard this religion, and this is a Roman colony, meaning if you have a religion and you're meeting under the banner of religion, it has to be a registered religion, and this, whatever they're speaking, is not registered. And so they're coming to the magistrates with that angle, even though they really want them out for what reason? Is because he's casting out evil spirits and they're losing money. Again, it tells you the state of Philippi. It's a demonic city that doesn't have a much religious influence involved in it. And then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they, now he switches back to they, Luke somehow got out of this. It was we, 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 now they. So he somehow gets out of this. Had laid many stripes on them, so Paul and Silas really, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, listen to this, how big the charge was. The jailer puts them into the inner prison and fastens their feet into the stocks. So this is like maximum security prison. For what? For what? For telling a new religion? Talking about a new religion? Casting out evil spirits of a poor girl? That's what they're getting maximum security prison for and beaten with rods. So their back is probably like hamburger at this point. Completely beaten with rods. And you're just thinking, wait a second. I had a vision of a man who needed help, and this is the treatment I get. That's what Paul probably was going through his mind, right? If you were Paul, what would you be thinking at this point? And what would you do? I'm sure you would do the same thing Paul and Silas would do. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So they're chained... Even their ankles are chained. Their backs are probably looked like hamburger. They had just been beaten with rods, brutalized. And what they do is they're singing to the God who sent them there. Amazing to me that this would happen. And it tells me so much about the Apostle Paul's heart and Silas's heart and all the people in the prison, it says, are listening to them. I don't know if they think they're crazy. Like, who are they even singing to? Are these the people in maximum security prison? Do they know what's going on? But whatever it is, Luke says, these people were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loose. Let's ask the question, okay, if you were in this position, you had just gotten beat with rods and thrown into the inner prison, chained up, don't know what tomorrow holds for you, what would you do? I'm telling you right now what I would do. I would have been gone a long time ago. I would have been out of there, right? I would have been gone, but Paul somehow, it has the heartbeat of God, he understands the call of God, and so the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners have fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself because if a prison, if the prison guard loses any prisoners, he's going to die. So he's just going to commit suicide. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. 
for we are all here. We're all here. And it said the chains were all broken. They all could have fled. That's huge. Why in the world did they not go? Because God was on the move. He, I mean, put on the first rock concert, and the foundations of the prison were just shaken. And boom, they knew that these people singing praises and hymns who had just gotten beaten with rods, they knew something was up with them. And somehow or some way, these other prisoners, not even Paul and Silas, but even the other prisoners didn't flee. And so then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So that right there tells me that this man knew what Paul and Silas was convicted of, of preaching a message saying, you need to be saved. And this guy put him under lock and key, knowing this. And when this happens, he says, this must be an act of God. What must I do to be saved? Because you could have taken off. Matter of fact, all these people could have taken off. But your actions have saved my life. So I must owe you something. What must I do to be saved? And then Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them in the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. So this man was about ready to kill himself. And then an hour or two later, he's saved, and he's literally washing the stripes. And his household is saved. Not just him, his whole household is saved. And he's literally the prison guard who locked him up in maximum security is now gently probably wiping off these wounds, these stripes that were put on Paul's back by these rods and Silas's back. And I just couldn't imagine how painful it probably was for Paul to sit there and he had this jailer who was just an enemy putting a cloth on his back and washing him off gently. Remarkable scene of how God can transform a person just like that. Remarkable scene how, God, how Paul and Silas could be so in tune with God to not leave that prison because Paul knew that God was up to something despite the pain that he was facing. And that tells me many times God will put us into something like that for the sake of another person and we are to be fine with it and we are not to take off and try to escape the pain because in the middle of the pain is sometimes a blessing that God wants to have in our lives. Whether it's with a personal victory within us or it's with leading someone to Christ, whatever it is, if we are in tune with the Lord and know that God has called us to this. Why are we so quick to avoid suffering? So easily said and hard to do. But when I pray, I'm praying in the scriptures many times because I can't do this in and of myself. And many of us are like, well, how do you pray and all these things? If you have a hard time just praying in thin air and just trying to figure out, well, what am I even supposed to pray to God I'm telling you, this is what I do, is I'll read a scripture like this, 
And I just start praying. It's like, God, where is your heartbeat in this? What do you want me to know? How am I to view you? That many times, God, would you put me in a position like this? Give me a vision. Put me in a position like this to lead someone to the Lord that I would have to sacrifice my body for the sake of another person? And he's like, yes. If I call you to it, you'll do it. And you'll even sing hymns in the middle of it. And it's okay. And as you pray that, then you start connecting with the heartbeat of God. Because if all you do is read for details, you're going to miss it. But if you pick up the scriptures and you open it up, and you read it, and then you pray over the scriptures, and you're looking for God's character in the word. If you look for his character, you'll find it, and you'll connect with him, and you'll have a relationship that's unmatched. So if some of you have been like, I'm so struggling with connecting with God, my prayer life is horrible, or it's struggling, and you're not doing this, try it. Because I'm telling you, it opened up a whole new realm of understanding for me and God. When I started praying the scriptures, because many times my emotions can go up and down, and if my faith is tied into my emotions, and it's not tied into the knowledge of God, then I, my, my faith will be wavering all the time. But the word of God never wavers. It's true all the time. And so if my faith is rooted in the word of God and in the character of God, then I'm never going to be falling off anywhere because I'm going to be dead set on the word of God. And if I even have to go into suffering... For the sake of the gospel, then I will go into suffering. And believe me, when you have to move your family to Uganda in a year and you feel called God call you to that, these are some of the prayers I'm already starting to pray. Like, God, I probably know we're going to end up into some suffering. And so I'm turning to these, and, and they're speaking so loudly to me. It's just like, even if I, well, I pray first that I don't run into any. Who wants that, right? Like, it's like God, man, I just hope this thing is easier than it is in America. But come on, it's Uganda. It's not going to happen. But it's worth praying. And anyways, but <laughs> I don't pray for that. Like, but if I know I'm called and I know my family's called and I love my kids more than anything, I would do anything for them. So would my wife. We would literally jump out in front of a semi to save them and not think twice about it. And so to take our children to Uganda for us is a big deal. And when you start putting your actions with your words and you start planning for that, you, this fear can come on you sometimes. I'm like, no, when I got scripture like this, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. I can even be in the midst of getting whipped and I can sing praises and hymns and it leads people to Christ. What we have here is a man, two men who have been beaten and because they were steadfast in the word, I wonder how many other prisoners came to Christ. We don't know that. But I do know is God wanted to save that jailer who was a man of influence, just like Lydia. Two people of influence, of authority in Philippi. And this is how the church starts in Philippi. This is what we get. I'm going to conclude in 35. And I read the rest of the way down. And when it was day... The magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly. 
uncondemned Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Would you do that? You'd be like, okay, praise the Lord. I'm out of this place. Matter of fact, I'm never going to look at this city again. Give me my rearview mirror. But he's like, no, keep me in prison. Why? What is Paul up to? Well, let's continue to read and I'll explain it. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. So Paul is a Roman citizen, even though he was born in Tarsus, which is southeastern Turkey. He was born there, but his parents were Roman citizens. That makes Paul a Roman citizen. It sounds like Silas was a Roman citizen, and you're not allowed to treat Roman citizens like this. So the Romans could treat other people a different way than they treat their own citizens. Their own citizens had different rights than other people. And they came and they pleaded with them now. Now they're pleading with Paul and Silas less than 24 hours later. Brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So how long was he here? Probably a week or if not, just a little bit more. And that's it. Why is Paul so adamant about making the magistrates, the Roman government in that city, come and talk to him? I think we have a few clues throughout Scripture, but I think Paul was trying to get a free ride to Rome. And why would he want to do that? Because that is the capital of the world, really. Everything's going in and out of Rome. All roads lead to Rome. And if he can get to Rome... And his heart's desire is to go to Rome. And he can lead people to Christ. And the whole world is coming into Rome and then leaving as exports and imports and all these travelers and tourists and all these things. So if he can go there, he can reach all the nations. He finally ends up going. And they call it the fourth missionary journey of Paul. But it's a little different. It wasn't the way Paul planned it. And he's thrown in prison and all these things. And he's taken captive to Rome. And he goes to prison there. And that's where he writes the book of Philippians. So when you're reading the book of Philippians, it's about eight or ten years later. But this is what the church of Philippi is founded in. So what we have is Lydia, the jailer's family, was the start of the church of Philippi. It was the start. And so when you pick up and you read the book of Philippians, Paul has an overwhelming love for that church, that little church, and this is why. God moved big time in this, little, this city, this demonic city to establish this church. And when you go through something like this, you just, your heart is connected with those people. And that's what's going on. So when you pick up and you read, and I challenge you, read the book of Philippians, look for the heartbeat of God, look for Paul's Look for Paul's heart, his love for the people, and the people's love for Paul, because you can find them both in there. It just opens it up so that letter comes personal to you, as it was personal to Paul in the church. I think that this, um, this chapter tells us a lot about who God is, but it also tells us a lot, about, a lot about the obedience of people who understand God's plan and would put themselves and their lives second to God's plan because they realize they're already living in the resurrection state of mind to where you can take my body now or later, but eventually I'm going there anyways. And so how do you implement that thinking into everyday life of 
guys, I'm already dead to this world and alive, so I'm just sort of this wayfaring stranger trying to make God and Jesus famous all throughout the world and in my local community and teach my kids this. So he's famous with my family and all these things because he wants to have a relationship with people. And that's what Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, that's what they understood. And so when anything came across them, an obstacle, man, they have the freedom to say, I can sit through this. So when you have that connection with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you can do things that you never thought you could do because you are on a mission for them and you understand their purpose for you in your life. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's about having a relationship with our Heavenly Father that's unmatched. And it's about then understanding how much He loves that person that He would actually send his son, not to only die for you, but for that person, and then you go reach them regardless of the cost. And he says the whole Bible hangs on those two commandments. Love God with your entire being, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what it looks like when it's lived out. Amen? It's my favorite... <laughs> Yeah, that's right, Roy. Say it again. Amen. Well, we have communion tonight, and it makes me want to take it even more when I read stuff like this. And it's all about Jesus' body. It was broken for us and his blood shed for us. And as we take of it, we are to take of it often because it reminds us who we are in Christ and what he's done for us, regardless of our past and our history, even what we've done today. We come to the the cross, and we just give it to him and say, thank you for dying for me. Help me to live sanctified life for you.